Hello and welcome to this IFG Live event on civil service reform. I'm Alex Thomas, a programme director at the Institute for Government, leading our work on the civil service. Uh, I declare an interest. I was a civil servant for 17 years until last Christmas, but I am now uh, unleashed to the world. Um, So we've got a lot to talk about uh, at this uh, event. We've known since at least uh, Christmas that the government wants to change the way the civil service works, to get people with different skills into government and to uh, shake up the Mandarin class. Um, But then uh, along came coronavirus, which may or may not change everything. So uh, really looking forward to uh, a discussion with a fantastic panel that we've got to discuss this. Uh, Sam Friedman is the Chief Executive at the Education Partnerships Group and was an advisor at the Department for Education uh, when he worked with one D. Cummings. Uh, Dame Una O'Brien is a former Permanent Secretary who for many years headed up the Department of Health, uh, now the Department of Health and Social Care, and most recently was one of a panel of three uh, leading the Renewable Heat Incentive Inquiry in Northern Ireland. And Ben Gummer was a minister also at the Department of Health uh, and uh, then minister for the Cabinet Office. Um, he is also, uh, semi-topically, the author of a book on plagues, but um, the Black Death, rather than anything uh, in this uh, uh, very difficult emergency that we're living through now. So uh, lots of experience to talk about the civil service and lots of experience to talk about um, the civil service in the current uh, coronavirus uh, emergency. I should also say thank you to everybody who sent in questions. I'm going to try and work in as many of them as I can uh, over the course of the, uh, the discussion. But to kick off, uh, I mean, a question to all of you, really. How how well prepared do you think the current civil service is to deal with this extraordinary, all-consuming crisis that we're that we're in? Uh, Una, perhaps to start with you. Yeah, well, thanks very much, Alex, and and thanks to you and the IFG for bringing us together. Um, I mean, where can I start? You know, I just want to say that civil servants are as much affected by this as anybody else whether they've uh, got the virus, they're worried about getting it, concerned about their vulnerable relatives or trying to juggle working from home with schooling. So individually uh, and in their families, they've had to adjust in the way everybody else has at at absolute lightning speed. Um, But they've also had to step up professionally. And I mean, there's hardly a department that's untouched. We can see at the moment we've got you know, a million universal credit applications, Jeffrey's dealing with the food chain, Bayes and HMRC doing business rescue, MOJ, the courts and the prisons. I mean, I could go on. So it's it's not just a health crisis for the civil service, but to me, an economic, well, to all of us, obviously, an economic and social challenge. I mean, it's really early days. I think there will be questions in the long run about preparedness strategy implementation and certainly the ultimate outcome but you know I'm struck talking to people um, in health and elsewhere by the extent of collaboration that's going on across departments and agencies as somebody said to me yesterday I've got more joint working happening in two weeks than I could have hoped for in two years we're seeing the use of technical and scientific expertise which I think is obviously a fantastic thing and something ramping up even as we speak are the, the range of external partnerships. So for me, I'm watching the civil service across the board working with great speed and intensity and and rising to the challenge, although, you know, we've got a long haul to go yet. So there's a lot, lots more, lots more to be revealed. 
Long haul, uh, definitely the case. I mean, Ben, from your experience of the civil service, and you were the minister um, uh, responsible uh, for the civil service alongside the, the prime minister. Do you, do you think the civil service we've got at the moment is 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 ready to tackle this crisis? Well, I, I don't think any organisation can be ready for it because it's it's it, it, it's correct to say that it's analogous to war, in the sense that it is an all of government effort, and those moments come very very rarely. And I I, I can't really think of a precedent for this. Um, of this scale since uh, since the Second World War, since the last time we had an all of government effort, uh, so I don't think it's I don't think it's a question that can ever be answered. Yes, there, yes, you're prepared um, because it would be a very odd government or any organisation. There's no big corporate in- institution which is ready for uh, an event like this. The thing that strikes me, having been to to a small extent aware of the planning for pandemic flu when I was running the cabinet office, is that um, they were very well worked up plans. Uh, they had been thought through deeply. Uh, you could see a great deal of um, forethought and testing had gone into it. And like any plan, uh, they pretty quickly disintegrate on first contact with reality. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't plan, but it makes it very difficult to to be able to prepare for something of this magnitude, especially when you're dealing with the uh, the, 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 you're in the following wind, as it were, of countries which have taken particular policy stances that then in today's world will mediate the way that a government will be forced to react uh, in, in this country. So uh, I think there has been a great deal of planning. Uh, that is clear. But whether it ever can be enough, I think, is a, a, a moot point. Yeah. And Sam, you, you've... Uh, uh... Uh, written really interestingly on Twitter and elsewhere about uh, your experience working with Dominic Cummings and the, the misfits and weirdos critique of the civil service. Do, do, do you think we're seeing uh, a move away from that kind of disruption uh, back towards the you know the rise of the expert and, and the rise of the, uh, the, the the classic civil service skills? Um, well, to, what's interesting, I think, is that a lot of the criticisms that um, Dominic has made of the civil service in the past about how it uh, there isn't any expertise in the right places, how it's very slow to react, um, how it's very bad at joined up working, um, how it's not prepared to bring in external expertise. It, when you have a crisis, of course, all of those things go out the window. Um, and it was you know, quite interesting to me to sort of speak to some people who've been involved. And, and you know, actually, you get the sense that in the, in the context of a crisis, a lot of those barriers and problems melt away and suddenly you know the people who really want to make a difference lean in given the authority to do whatever they need to do get it done and you see hospitals being built in a week and um, you know extraordinary things happening very quickly I think the interesting question is how do you get that sort of thing happening when there isn't a massive crisis that sort of forces it forces it how do you get some of that speed uh, and, ad- and adaptability and flexibility to happen? Uh, in normal circumstances, and I think one of the really interesting questions is when eventually this is this is over, or at least uh, got to a manageable state. Um, what are the good things about the re- the reaction to it that can be retained um, in the ways of working that the civil service has? And that might be a catalyst for for further uh, reform. Uh, you know, really interested. We'll, we'll, we'll get on to talk about that, uh, no doubt. I mean, what, one of the one of the outcomes of the last phase of reform, the kind of Francis Moorwood reforms, was an increased fun- focus on uh, the what, what the civil service calls the functions 
so those kind of cross-cutting bits of 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 the machine like uh, finance commercial project management uh digital and and and, and people um and uh, we've seen in some some previous crises, no, nothing like on this scale, um, but the Carillion um, uh, uh, collapse uh, and arguably Brexit, some of those functions have kind of proved their use. Some of them perhaps haven't, but but some of them definitely have. And I, I wonder, Una, whether whether you're seeing or whether you're more confident in the ability of the machine to kind of step up to that crisis, even though it can never fully be ready because of because of the existence of that previous round of reform that that came out of a different catalyst. Yeah, well, I think that's a really interesting way of, of looking at it, Alex. And uh, I I just um, wanted to perhaps connect your question to Sam's last point there, which is when, when you see all these amazing things start to happen in the civil service because of a crisis, how do you um, retain it afterwards? Is it because of the underlying changes you've already made? And we'll come back to this sort of uh, point about professionalism or is there something in the way um, that the, the leadership comes into play I, um, I happen to have been picked up the other day Peter Hennessy's book on Whitehall which is the sort of bible really for me um, even though it's now over 30 years old and uh, fascinatingly he writes about the um, way the civil service responded at the point of the second world war huge um, import of people with different skills. There were new methods. It was crucial to the mobilisation of British society. But I think it tells you everything um, that the chapter after that one, which talks about the civil service after World War II, is entitled The Missed Opportunity. And there was a lot of reversion to type and a failure principally to grasp the significance of management and implementation skills. So, you know, I'm wondering, thinking about the reforms of recent times, um, perhaps taking us into somewhat controversial territory for me as a former civil servant, but how important is it that you actually have political leadership for reform of the civil service? Um, what happened after the Second World War is that really um, that there was very little. And, and that's the judgment of history is that that was one of the reasons why a, a number of the significant improvements one saw during the early 1940s just were not sustained in the civil service afterwards. So I think my reflection is, while it's important to stick with the things that we have done in the last 10 years, looking forward, the where where is the political um, stimulus and challenge going to come from for, for the reforms that we need to sustain? And by political leadership, do you, you mean leadership from the politics? You don't mean a kind of politicisation of the civil service. You mean leadership of the politicians, a kind of interest and engagement Absolutely. in civil service reform that, yeah. we, that we might see yeah. from Michael Gove now, for example. Well, you know, the um, it, if you look at some of the most significant sustained reforms of the civil service, uh, from my perspective, whether it's next steps outsourcing i know there some of them are controversial in some in some quarters but they've been very major reforms in the civil service um and uh, the more recent work on projects and professionalization they were all a combination of leadership from within the civil service but with a strong political drive to say you have to you have to change you need to to step forward and be different and that's coming from political leadership as well as from within the civil service. 
on that uh, on that theme, there's a question from Tom Townsend, uh, which is uh, specifically directed at Ben, but it picks up on on what Una was just saying. Ben, what what would you have prioritised uh, in terms of civil service reform when you were minister for cabinet office that you feel would have put the government in a better place to manage a pandemic? There's there's an unfair question for you, um, but are there things you you think you think that over the course, not just sort of in your time as minister for civil service, but over the course of the last uh, decade that we perhaps should have prioritised that we that we didn't. Well, can I just preface any remark I make in the next <laughs> few minutes um, and to all other questions with three important things which I think need to be said before you, as a politician or former politician, wade into this area. The first is that um, as a minister, I loved working with civil servants. I was enormously fortunate to be working with um, driven, interesting, intellectually engaging uh, and fundamentally decent and honourable people. Um, I know that's like any organisation, that's not going to be 100% of the population of civil servants, but I found it to be the case almost universally so. And it made work as a minister, which was often doing very difficult things, a pleasure because you were doing it with great people. On on that point, Ben, I'm sorry to cut in, but I, I did get a, uh, a question from uh, your former Principal Private Secretary that said, please prompt Ben Gummer to mention his brilliant Cabinet Office private office team. <laughs> brackets. Brilliant. Brackets. Probably probably best not to mention the time we forgot to send him to Cabinet. Close brackets. So anyway, I've, 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 uh, I've passed that on. <laughs> sorry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> that was a particularly memorable moment there. <laughs> um the second, the second thing I would say about, um, the second thing I would say about the civil service is, and, and reflecting on Nina's point, which I think is very interesting, is that uh, it is certainly true that there was a problem after the Second World War that we learnt the wrong lessons, as is often a British thing, um, and we've kind of thought that we um, that somehow government had realised that having won a war it could do everything, and that was manifestly not the case. And no matter, I think, what stance you take, unless you take a very, very purely ideological one. Um, the 15, 20 years immediately after the war were wasted, wasted not just in the civil service terms, but in terms of the reform of our economy and, and getting us into a place where we could build a modern uh, nation state. Um, and learning the right lessons and making sure you're reforming in the right way and being deeply thoughtful about it and not um, anarchic is very important. And the third thing I would preface my um, remarks by is to say that things are different now from the way they were even 10 or 15 years ago. They were certainly different from when Una went into the civil service. We are now running as as civil services around the world in developed countries, more sophisticated organisations than any corporation on its own operates. So the idea that you can do these things perfectly or, or even kind of generally competently, it's still an unproven concept. The, the countries that we point to that you say, you know, they, they run themselves very well tend to be medium sized at, at, at their very largest. And, and most of the, the best are, are city states. So the idea that as a large country where you're employing between 30 and 40% of the workforce, spending that amount of money of the economy in a normal year uh, and delivering a range of services that covers the entire gamut of human experience, uh, this is unparalleled in human history and it's still as far as i'm concerned a kind of an untested proposition so with those three prefaces to say well what would you do to reform uh, the civil service i think the one thing um which i did concentrate on but i could have always have done more i strongly support the functional agenda it was basically john manzoni's um uh, 
introduction into civil service reform, he should get the credit for it. Uh, and it works on the basis, frankly, that any government policy nowadays requires a huge amount of technical heavy lifting. It's not something you legislate for and then it happens. It requires huge uh, functional muscle to make it happen. Unless you have functional muscle making it happen in the room right at the beginning, then you won't have a, a government policy delivered. So you need that kind of depth of expertise. And the real cultural change that needs to happen is that people who make policy happen, the functional people, need to be respected uh, as as uh, on the same level as the, the the mighty policy brains of Whitehall, and that is still a cultural change, which I don't think, if we're honest, honest, honest with ourselves, has actually happened across the across the board. Mm. I think that's right, uh, Sam. In terms of your experience working kind of with and and and, and around the civil service, uh, I suppose firstly, do, do you kind of do, do you recognise that? But but also, do you do you think that some of the profound challenging things the civil service has gone through over the last few years see overwhelmingly uh, brexit uh has exposed some of its uh kind of strengths and weaknesses uh, and 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 whether kind of the the corona crisis a uh, coronavirus uh, uh crisis will will uh, will will do the same yeah i mean i think that um the 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 challenges I saw in the civil service, which you know, are not uh, plenty of other people have commented on as well, um, were not to do with the individual people. And I would agree with Ben that the sort of individual civil servants are on the whole um, extremely talented and uh, very great people to work with. Um, but but the sort of disconnect, and this may be particularly strong in the education department between between the. Um, civil servants in in Whitehall and the front line. Um, there were very, very few people with experience of schools in in the department. And they struggled to even get schools to talk to or representative groups of schools or individuals to talk to when they were doing policy development. So there was a real challenge uh, there, um, which I think then leaves you with a lot of quite standard new public management levers, which become increasingly less effective over time and then you've got a kind of set of issues around um uh expertise within the department more broadly and and and, and as very smart people gain expertise in a particular area if they are very good they usually uh move pretty quickly into a different area um, and you lose that expertise and it has to be built up again by another sort of smart generalist but you, you often lose um time and uh, sort of leverage by by doing that so um I think those were the, the problems I experienced. And I think you did see those um, uh, sort of rear their, their head during Brexit and again um, through, through this sort of coronavirus um, period. I think um, at the departmental level, they have, you know, again, thinking about the education department, there has been a bit of a struggle to manage the uh, fallout for schools, partly because you don't have a lot of people in the department who think like, a school would think and therefore think through how challenging some of the issues that are being thrown at schools have been around some of the guidance uh, there. So I think we have seen those 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 challenges reemerge. Um, but I also think, you know, as we've been talking about, you know, this 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 then does represent an opportunity to take forward that that sort of functional agenda. How do we connect um, better to the front line? How do we move away from some of the sort of um, new public management nostrums 
Um, how do we give more autonomy? Because when we because when we have had to in this situation, we have done it, and so far at least it seems to have had a positive effect. Um, and uh, how do we get some of the outside expertise that we've had to bring in to deal with the situation? How do we make some of that more permanent? So I think it does raise the right questions around permanent reform, um, and it would be good to see to make sure that we don't miss the opportunity this time. And, and I think having worked with Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings, um, the one thing that I'm fairly sure that they won't want to do is miss, a cri- miss the opportunities presented by a crisis. Um, one of uh, Dominic's favourite quotes was Lenin's, the worse the better, um, because there's that sort of sense that, you know, a real crisis is when you get the opportunity to change things. Um, so I don't, I don't think he will need me or anyone else to tell him that this is a very good opportunity to... To, to drive some of that reform. Yeah, and that's particularly the case when you're talking about the state and the, the, the state, um, uh, 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 the, the, the government, which can be uh, so hard to change in, in normal times. I mean, building on that and staying with you for a moment, Sam, but then I'll, I'll broaden it out and sort of taking us away a bit, though no doubt we will circle back around to, uh, to coronavirus, but, um, but taking us away from that and thinking about that, you know, the opportunities that, um, that exist here in the kind of broader civil service reform, one hardy perennial is obviously the kind of politicisation or US style um, uh, uh, political uh, appointments. And there was a we've had a question from the uh, the astute Whitehall watcher Sue Cameron about whether the aim of this government's Whitehall reform plans is to move to that US style uh, recruitment uh, system. But my hunch, and and Sam, you will know better than me, but is that Michael Gove and Dominic Cummings are actually less interested in politicisation and more interested in competence and uh, knowledge of uh, you know knowledge of the sector's skills uh, uh, reducing turnover that that kind of less you know less exciting but really important uh, reform of the system uh, is that you know am, am, I, am I right on that or am I kind of completely um, I think it's a bit of a mix actually so I think if you look at what happened in education um, there's no doubt that Michael you know used every trick in the book that he could find to bring in people who were um, on the same page as him in terms of the reforms he wanted to push through. That's not quite the same as politicisation. A lot of people, including Dominic himself, weren't conservatives, um, but they did believe in the reform agenda. Um, and he did, uh, as I say, he did he did manage to, to, to shove in a few extra people beyond the usual SPAD allowance to help him do that. And I think, um, you know, he wouldn't be averse to looking at how more of those kinds of ideologically aligned um uh but highly competent people could be brought in to um to help drive reform agendas across different departments i don't think they ever want to go as far as the kind of american system where very large numbers of roles are held politically um i don't think that would that would be something that would be of interest to them but i think probably some more opportunity to create sort of almost like um uh uh, polit- smaller sort of equivalent of Drowning Street offices within departments may be something that they'd be interested in. But I do think more broadly they're interested in the concept of expertise um, and how you can bring in outsiders and really competent uh, people to um, to help drive uh, drive drive things forward in in, in government um, and not just bring individuals in but connect. Uh, the uh, civil service with outside organisations who can um, provide that kind of scientific or data-driven expertise that perhaps isn't always there in departments. Mm-hmm. All, all, all that said, um, uh, one of the things that's happened over the last few days um, is we've seen new permanent secretary appointments at 
the Home Office, uh, Chief Operating Officer at the Cabinet Office, going back a bit at, um, uh, at, at, at MI5, going back a bit, Ambassador to Washington, all very conventional civil service appointments, which, uh, which uh, I found very interesting. And we had a question from Joe Murphy on Twitter about to what extent the core values of the civil service can still be upheld in today's political landscape. I thought, Una, you might want to want to have a go at that. Yeah, well, I, I'm absolutely sure that they can be upheld. And it's down to each generation of, of civil servants supported by politicians, actually, um, across the board to uphold those values. And it's not for nothing that the Prime Minister is the Minister for the Civil Service and responsible for the overall regulation of, of the Civil Service. But I do just want to not, not quite lose the point about um, expertise um, in the Civil Service because it seems to me, from my experience at the Department of Health, that one of the problems that, that you face is, that, and, and in fact the Department of Health used to have a model where we employed hundreds of doctors and in the 1990s, we, we decided that, that that model didn't work because the longer the doctors were um, coming to offices in London, the less good they became at clinical things and knowing about up-to-date um, developments in, in hospitals and in primary care. And we just thought the model of having the expertise um, really fully embedded within the organisation um, had a sort of shelf life that was not really very um, uh, very useful. So looking to the future and sort of observing some of the ways in which expertise is being used now, I'm very um, intrigued by what Sam is saying about how much further we could go in working in partnership with uh, hubs of expertise that exist, particularly in universities. Uh, currently, I sit on the board of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and it's fascinating to see how significant the uh, mathematical modelling and epidemiological capability there is, is in the work that's going on currently, so, similarly the case with the work of Imperial. You could never replicate or own that expertise inside a government department. It just simply wouldn't be of the quality that you can obtain in a university. So I would like to see a much more far-reaching agenda of working in partnership with hubs of expertise, whether in industry, um, in civic society, uh, particularly large-scale charities, and also in universities. And I think that's part of the way of addressing the Cummings agenda, which I do support. I think he's on the right track to be talking about skills, but you'll never be able to achieve uh, the level of input needed simply by bringing individuals in. The scale of, of, of work is just too great. One of the um, problems as well that, that Dominic Cummings has picked up on, but also the IFG and, and others, is about turnover. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it, it feels like an intractable problem in, in, in the civil service, and it has been for a while. Um, I mean, you know, do you think, do you think there's, there's more that the civil service should be doing to, uh, to change its structures, its incentives, um, its kind of promotion a, a approaches to, to discourage turnover and to keep people sticking with projects? I, I'm sure there is. And I think there has definitely been a, a, a change when it comes to um, those projects that are being looked after by the Infrastructure and Projects Authority. And I know that new mechanisms have been designed to 
enable people to get promoted within a project and to, if they're good enough, increase their pay and so on. But I think we need to do a lot more on that front. Um, All the incentives are to work for 18 months to two years and and then move on. And uh, the whole culture encourages the building of expertise by going into different jobs rather than becoming um, an expert or or, um, deeply knowledgeable and capable in a particular policy area. Um, But that's going to take um, quite a lot of effort to look at how jobs are designed, um, how promotion works and how the reward system works. And quite a lot of that, I'm afraid, is, is, is stalled um, because of the uh, freezes that have been placed um, quite understandably following the years of austerity. But now is the time, once we get through this crisis, to really for those policies uh, to be looked at in a much more radical way. Ben, would you have welcomed that when you were a, a minister? More, more permanence, more, you know, more fresh thinking about, about how the system should work? Or is it not the job of ministers to, to dirty their hands with those, uh, uh, those, uh, those bits of business that, yeah. should be for the, that should be for the official machine? Well, it, all being well, then it, the system should operate without too much intervention from ministers. But, uh, and the reason why I gave these very heavy prefaces at the beginning of this is to, that I, I, can then, <laughs> I can be direct in my <laughs> criticism, though, hopefully um, with the approach that I come in peace, which I do. Um, and I, I too have a, an enormous amount of sympathy for uh, Dom's criticisms. And actually, when you look carefully at what he says, he's far more critical of the political and the journalistic class than he is of the civil service. Um, and I think many of his criticisms of both those groups are 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 very well founded. Um, I have a slightly different belief in style, and I think you probably achieve more um, sometimes um, through. Um, less creative destruction than um, than he might have a taste for. But uh, I think his fundamental criticisms are, are in many cases well-founded. And I have to say, those, of those moments when I was most disappointed in the civil service, it was when uh, they rejected outside expertise in areas that I knew that they needed help in. Um, and without kind of without going into too much detail, there were two particular instances. One with, was, was with a poorly performing um, unit, one was with a very high performing unit, and in both instances, um, I felt they required um, they required particular kind of support, which I arranged. Uh, and although I had a reputation, I think, as a minister who supported the civil service and was not there to try and cause trouble, um, in both instances they were rejected for interestingly different reasons. I mean, it, it it wasn't as if they were formally rejected, but both the people were treated like lepers. Um, in the one instance, it's because I think it came out of a very natural insecurity and there wasn't the management process around that team to make them feel secure enough to be able to have someone with them. In the other, in the other instance, it was because it was a very high-performing unit who just had a kind of an arrogance about them. Now, in both cases, what was failing was a kind of culture of learning and a culture of 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 management support, uh, which bore itself out, frankly, in the people studies that you looked at the various departments. First of all, they map pretty clearly, closely onto which departments are most effective. So you can see those departments that work really well, 
um, and that, that, that tend to get their policies over the line that make them happen also have quite, they perform quite well in the people studies, in the people service. Not universal, but it is pretty, pretty standard. And the things that really make a difference in the way that the civil service people survey, um, uh, demonstrates people's commitment to their job. Um, of course, money is a portion of it, but far more. It's the quality of management and the training that people feel, people feel they have access to and the sense of mission they have in their department. And when, if you're able to give that to, to officials and to civil servants, then you can do an enormous amount to make them feel motivated about their job and to accept and to be welcoming to outside expertise and to embrace it as part of their modus operandi. Now, part of that has to de- depend on allowing people to be in jobs which they are good at for long enough for them to make an impact. And when they're not good enough, they need to be able to be moved out and got rid of. And I also am afraid share in Dom's analysis that now and again, it didn't happen very often with me, you have a poorly performing official. And it's just really dispiriting to see them pop up somewhere else in the the ecosystem, um, which is deemed to be an unimportant policy area because there isn't the kind of guts to deal with uh, people who are just not performing well enough. Now, that, that, that's not just bad for the public. It's bad for the civil service, because it's really dispiriting for officials, all of whom know that a particular individual is poorly performing, to see them their work undermined by that individual. And uh, I don't think we still, we still not got to a place yet where we are supportive enough of well-performing civil servants by being tough on those who are not. Mm, very uh, uh, certainly recognise many of those points, Ben. Thank you for uh, thank you for making them, and, I, and, and you would uh, you would find lots of people within the civil service. I think who would agree with a lot of what you've said. I'm I'm, I'm really interested, and maybe Sam will come to you, but others do do please uh, come in on this point about the kind of the cultural rejection uh, of uh, of outside expertise or, or, or new in, uh, or, or new kind of input. Um, uh, what, why do you think that is? And uh, the civil service has a you know, has a strong culture. Everyone is very polite to each other. Everybody's very nice to each other. But actually, there's a very particular type of culture that you kind of either get or don't get. And those who are rejected can find themselves pushed out of it quite, quite, um, quite rapidly and quite brutally. Uh, Sam, I don't know if that was something you experienced or have uh, have thoughts on. Yeah, I mean, I think it, whilst I was at the Department for Education, it certainly the culture changed a lot. Um, I mean, I think because of the nature of Michael and Dominic and the way they work, um, people who did not like that kind of way of working um, uh, moved on pretty quickly or went to other roles. Um, So you ended up at the end of that time with a group of people who was much more aligned to their way of working and operating than there had been at the beginning. Um, So I had probably quite an unusual experience because I had such a strong-minded minister um, and uh, advisor colleagues um, that kind of drove a culture that was quite different to the standard culture. But sort of having seen the department since they both left and since I left as well, um, I think it has kind of reverted a bit to, to, to how it was before. Um, and um, I'm not quite sure why they find it so difficult to... Um, understand the challenges i guess that people from outside the civil service have i i genuinely think in in, for a lot of it it's just because they haven't had experience of doing it so whether it's working for schools or working for charities small charities there's just not an understanding of the impact that delays or certain types of decision have on the frontline organizations that they're working with um 
And I can only see that changing through diversifying the kind of people that you have in the in the department, which has which I, I do think is happening to some degree, um, and through the sort of more creative use of secondments, which I know also happens to some degree. Um, but uh, it, it, I think it remains a frustration for um, people, no longer me, but for people who, who who have to work with the department from the outside. Yeah, yeah. Can I just come in on that, Alex? Um, this is a really big challenge. If, we, if we're talking here about London policy departments with uh, people with civil servants who um, are working, whether let's just take health, education, immigration, whatever, and we're saying... How do they get sufficient experience of what it's like at the front line to be able to um, provide really good, deeply informed uh, policy advice to ministers? And that is really, really difficult because you're um, asking people, in a sense, to have a lifetime's experience of delivery when um, they're still relatively early on in their career. So it's a conundrum. Now, interestingly, at the Department of Health, and Alex, you might even recall this, but after the Midstaff's inquiry, one of the interesting innovations that um, Jeremy Hunt and I agreed on, and we implemented it, it certainly lasted for at least two years, was that we required all members of the senior civil service to spend 20 working days a year on some form of activity at the health or social care front line. And when I first introduced this, this caused absolute ructions from my colleagues in this, who said, we'll never do it, we won't have the time, it's not possible. But in fact, we did deliver it and it had a huge impact at the time on the a mindset of people who perhaps had come straight from university into the civil service, based in the southeast of England. They'd never spent five days um, uh, 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 shadowing staff in a trust in in the northwest. And so, I think we need to be much more innovative about how we connect civil servants to the operational front line. And that was one example of doing it. Um, but it's not. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do. And and just one final point, I just want to link to what Sam said earlier. In the end, some policies, do they really need to be run from Whitehall? Is some of these issues beyond reform of the civil service, but about the right level at which change should be led and developed? And I do wonder whether over the last 15 or 20 years from all parties, whether we've over-centralised um, some policy areas to the extent that it's very difficult to see from London what really the issues are and what's going on. So there's a wider debate here about where decisions get taken and who's taking them that I think is beyond civil service reform. Mm. The, yes, the, the civil service reform bit of it uh, is is often kind of where central government civil servants should be located, uh, and that takes up quite a lot of airtime. I mean, you know, you referred to the London-based uh, civil service at the beginning of your uh, uh, point there, and so there, there is rightly, though I suspect it will be on the back burner uh, uh, for a little while, a debate about where those uh, policy civil servants should. Be. Uh, 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 but uh, as uh, John O'Leardon, uh, 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 who works in the Irish Civil Service, and I apologise if I've got his uh, surname wrong, uh, uh, asked us, 
about some of the implications of uh, the uh, uh, mass uh, remote working for the first time in the history of the uh, civil service uh, uh, what what might the implications of that be for the kind of shape of the civil uh, the civil service uh, so there's a there's an aspect of that location but then there's a uh, as you suggested a much more profound uh, deeper point about where decisions are taken and uh, and how power is kind of uh, collected in the center or, or given away i mean uh, a trivial point, Ben, but then develop it uh, however you like. Uh, as a minister, were you happy to have uh, civil servants on um, uh, on video conference or voicemail uh, or um, uh, video voice conference? Well, we were both as you, we, we kind of followed each other around. I probably followed you, Alex, didn't I? I think we were. <laughs> you did. You uh, did from the health from health and government <laughs> office. But. Under Una's um, leadership of the uh, of the um, Department of Health, we use video conferencing all the time. Um, it was oh, just okay. a standard standard way of meeting and that was because the various bodies were around the country and it made sense um the cabinet office didn't have even the technology uh to be able to do a lot of the stuff which they did in uh in in uh, the department of health i feel very strongly about this it was something i pushed on considerably um i needed more than a year to make it happen in in toto and i'm very glad to see that michael gove has picked it up again but it's it's absolutely crackers that we do not have significant amounts of the UK civil service in Edinburgh, um, uh, and in Cardiff and in Belfast. Um, it is it's mad that we don't have subsidiary parts of the of of the machine um, in in cities around the country, and the resistance within parts of the civil service to moving out of London is really severe. I mean, I remember having, I, I don't mind being open about this, a hilarious row with HMRC, which could be one of the most reactionary organisations in, in, in the civil service uh, universe. Um, when they, they kind of cleverly managed to conspire that moving out of London meant going to Canary Wharf or Stratford, I can't remember, is one of them. And, and they were kind of, it was being counted within the figures as, as not London. It was absolutely crackers. And, it was getting through that and trying to actually say no no moving out became uh you know it was fight after fight in the i felt like i was in the trenches sometimes with people i didn't need to be fighting with i, I remember one particular fight about having a new agency was being set up and i said no it has to be it has to be in the north and there was a great big argument about whether the chief executive had an office in london and i knew perfectly well what would happen and sure enough that that agency now has got three floors of the central London building and you know, everything that I had um, imposed has been, <laughs> has vanished the minute I left. So this is the, the frictional um, nature of this argument is very problematic. And I think is actually really dangerous to the UK and the civil service needs to take it seriously. You know, they, they are not here to serve London. They are here to serve not only the whole of England, but the United Kingdom. And that means having civil servants around the United Kingdom. And when I went to go and see UK civil servants in Scotland, you know, often they felt like they weren't being supported just because they, there wasn't the kind of the, 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 the weight of um, attention in terms of pure buildings, manpower, stuff going on that there should have been. And uh, it, it is a vital part of keeping our union together to make sure that we have got more civil servants in the parts of the country which they are helping to serve yeah uh, and uh, as i say it, it it feels like that agenda might have paused in, in coronavirus but it's it's definitely something that is uh vital for the uh, uh for, for the civil service to, to recognize i think one 
uh, one final question to all of you, uh, and it's been a bit of a theme that's kind of run 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 through this conversation, which is that we can we can broadly agree that the uh, Cummings Gove whatever uh, Johnson problem diagnosis is uh, you know has a, has a lot in it uh, at least, um, and uh, in fact a lot of it resonates with um, uh, reports that go back decades uh, about civil service reform, whether it's Fulton in the 60s or the next steps in the 80s or uh, uh, any number of other uh, bits of uh, uh, bits of reform. The, the difficult thing has always been actually making change happen, uh, identifying the specific uh, changes that uh, the reforms that need to uh, need to happen and then uh, sticking at them for long enough to genuinely change the system. So what would uh, each of your uh, bit of advice be uh, to, to those reformers who uh, who actually want to make real change happen and to make it last over uh, over decades? Um, maybe uh, Sam first. Okay, well, I'm less in the camp of doing something new as, um, uh, as pref- my preference um, is to really build on some of the very, very important things that are already in place that need to go further and faster. So it, we have to acknowledge the enormous progress that's been made on digital government. Uh, it, 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 we forget, you know, just how recently it was that you couldn't even get a driving license online. But now um, the systems are integrated with passports and so on. Um, there are so many other aspects of digital government, government that are functioning and functioning well. And I think the scope to do a lot more on that. Um, I would certainly want to maintain the emphasis on skills and the professions. And as I've mentioned earlier, I do think this time time has come to look at the whole pay and reward system. But I think for me, the I don't I don't think we should allow um, structures or ideology to get in the way. I wouldn't support any big uh, machinery of government change. I think that's a complete diversion. Um, But I want to just say, if you like, as my final word, that one of the most significant things that needs to come out of the current crisis is that we have to be able to do big things fast before a problem is staring us in, in the face. Because certainly when it comes to climate change, we will not be able to do things at the last minute and save ourselves. So I would like a much more fundamental um, attention from the civil service and government as a whole to uh, the steps that need to be taken to anticipate and prepare for and mitigate some of the huge problems that are facing us um, nationally and internationally in, in the decade ahead. And I think if anything comes out of this crisis that's positive, uh, it could be something of that of that ilk. So, and I believe that the civil service has got the capability to do that with the right leadership. Um, so, I would be um, looking at, at, at this crisis, which is going to last a long time and is going to dominate not just this year but the years to come. Um, and I'd be saying to uh, across the civil servants, to all ministers, to all permanent secretaries, our objective here is not to return to normal; it's to uh, get a uh, return to a better situation than we were at before and to use this experience 
to identify those things that have been positive and retain them or build on them rather than just trying to return to where we were. And I would look at a number of buckets for that. I think one, um, which I think Una mentioned, was about technology. Um, I think, you know, we've seen, you know, both just to take two examples, Parliament, Parliament and the courts using technology in the way that they've resisted for decades. Um, and I don't see why they should be allowed to return to resisting it when this is over. Um, there are far more efficient ways to do lots of things within the British state um, that we will have to do as a result of this. And we should we should um, keep. I think there's a second bucket around um, autonomy to the front line. Um, I think a, a lot of decisions are, are having to be made at the level of uh, uh, frontline institutions, be they hospitals uh, or schools uh, or businesses. And we should look at uh, the strengths of doing that um, and what uh, can be learned from that and what can be retained rather than, again, again as I think Una mentioned earlier, trying to kind of re-centralise everything um, at the point where uh, we're able to... Um, uh, again, and thirdly, I think there's a much there's a really big question which we haven't really got into today. But I think is this sort of dominating question of efficiency that you know uh, Ben talked about the the treasury mindset has, has has dominated the way Whitehall works for a long time and has been supported by ministers from different governments, um, but but has arguably put us in a place where we're really not very resilient either to manage the Brexit crisis or to manage this crisis. Um, and I think we have to look at some of the absolutely fundamental underpinnings of what we consider important about the way the state works. So I would be really using this opportunity, which, as I say, will last a long time, to, but to, to get people to really try and look for what a new normal will be when this is eventually over. Uh, well, I think there are two things. Um, uh, one is um, a message for civil servants and politicians. Another one is really just for politicians and the civil servants ser serving them in that in that order. So starting with the first, we need to work out a better way of holding accountable organisations actually accountable. Um, in terms of thinking about civil service reform, we could have imagined that this is about this might be about having brilliance at the centre in this huge organisation in London. Uh, which just kind of as an all controlling mind is able to do things better. But that just isn't the case. And whether it's in a real sense uh, devolving power in the way that Una has suggested, uh, but also getting arm's length organisations to operate better, this is actually going to be, if it's going to happen, it's going to be as a result of, of devolved authority, people on the front line doing stuff better, and the people who are responsible for them. Uh, the actual central government is relatively small, as anyone who's worked there um, will know, compared with the, the enormity of the bodies which actually deliver public services to people across the country. And to give you an example of why this relationship is not working properly at the moment, um, it's one that Una will recognise well. Uh, under the Health and Social Care Act, which um, you probably can't say without it sounding like a swear word in her presence, <laughs> um, that... You know, you were supposed to go through this annual charade of an accountability meeting with NHS England, where you find out whether they've done what they said they would do the previous year, and then you tell them off if they haven't. Well, they never do what they said they would do. The plans are incredibly opaque anyway. Um, the, the people, one way or another, slip out of the things which they should have done, and no one is ever held accountable for anything. Now, in normal times, no one pays any attention to that. But when you have a moment like this, where the actual responsibility 
for providing PPE equipment to NHS staff is nothing to do with Whitehall. It's NHS England's responsibility. Who is it who is on the media being held accountable for that? And the problem is, is that at this moment in time, when you need the proper leadership to make that happen, um, you, you, you don't have those accountability structures, which were it in a military operation or in um, a proper commercial organisation, you would actually be able to move people and get someone in who was willing to take uh, responsibility. And that is incredibly frustrating for ministers because how how could a minister or a permanent secretary, for that matter, physically go out and count the stuff which they have been told is present? And if you look at all the documents, one of which Una was responsible for writing, and it's a very good document, it says there there is a stockpile of this stuff. And it turns out it isn't. And it's not anyone's fault in Whitehall. It's because of these arm's length organisations too often do not perform at the level which um, the public demands of them. And there isn't a kind of an, a, a suitable way of being able to get a grip on that, which exists within our existing governance structures and the way that politicians and those um, officials are judged by the media. So that is one big thing, which unless it's sorted out, um, will stymie any kind of reform which might go brilliantly at the centre. The second is this, and this is really a warning to, to uh, politicians. Unless you learn to prioritise, you will achieve nothing. We have too many times over the last 30, 40 years just had huge, great rafts of policy which which don't address um, key things which the public want to be delivered. If you're trying to do more than 10 things or eight things or even five things, you're just not going to do them. And I haven't found in looking quite in some quite detail across the world um, at a, a reform program initiated by a government which has succeeded, which has had a huge number of priorities. Unless you prioritize, and that's really hard to do, you will not achieve what you want to do. And that is something, a challenge also for officials, because officials have to be far more robust in forcing ministers to prioritise. Uh, because unless you do that, um, you're going to achieve nothing. That is brilliant. Quite a note to end on. And the same applies to civil service reform as well. So um, uh, I would just, all that remains is for me to say uh, thank you to uh, our, our great panel, uh, Sam Friedman, uh, Dame Una O'Brien and Ben Gummer. Thanks to everyone who submitted uh, questions. Uh, I hope I did them justice. And thank you to everybody for uh, listening. Do continue to subscribe to IFG Live, our uh, corona response to uh, being unable to hold events in our in our buildings in uh, London. Uh, keep subscribing, keep subscribing to all the IFG uh, material uh, and we will see you next time.